0: Welcome to to
1: smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that hopefully satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stepp and John Rojas here. Got a really cool one for you today. We are talking about behavioral economics and how we can use economics to solve some really interesting questions we have about ourselves as humans. Why we do what we do. What our motivations are. This week we're speaking with Uri Nisi. Uri is the Epstein-Atkinson Endowed Chair in Behavioral Economics and Professor of Economics and Strategy at UC San Diego. He's also the author of the book, The Y-Axis, Hidden Motives and the Undiscovered Economics of Everyday Life. So in his book and in our conversation today with Uri, what we're talking about is how do we determine what motivates us as humans in different areas And how do we apply a science to it so that we can prove it? So Uri and his team do large-scale field experiments, and they observe people in their natural environments without them being aware that they're being observed. These types of experiments have revealed ways to close the gap between rich and poor students, how to stop violence plaguing inner-city schools, to decipher whether women are really less competitive than men, the list goes on and on. And today in our episode, we're going to talk about a lot of these. Going to turn it over here to Uri in a minute. Hey, guys, head on over to Smart People Podcast. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter as things come out, which we have a bunch planned. Hopefully, by the end of this year, we can get them out to you on there. We also send some of our really favorite parts of the show out through that newsletter. So look forward to connecting with you there. Going to turn it over. Here is our interview with Uri Neezy. Uri, thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you today as we were kind of just discussing prior to hitting the record button. Uh, the work you do in behavioral economics really has a lot of implications in our everyday life. And I think the way you study it and the, the stories you tell often really draws in your readers and your listeners. I was wondering You know, have you always been fascinated in behavioral economics and how decision-making processes work and really just how those types of interactions work in the world?
2: Absolutely. So from day one, when I started doing my PhD, that's what I was interested in. So I'm interested since I was a kid in, you know, what motivates people? Why do people do what they do? That's, you know, observing people and trying to guess what is it that they do. That's, That's my passion. Now, only recently, you know, getting older, I'm 47 now. Uh, Getting older, I started to think about ways to actually convince people that they should do something with our knowledge. So not just publish it uh, in journals that my friends will read and, you know, have fun, but maybe also try and influence the real world and in particular companies. So the main goal, I think, in writing the book, at least on my end, was to try and get the message out to people, to companies, that they should use much more behavioral economics in what they're doing. And field experiments is is the right way to go in many cases. Don't just guess. Don't trust your intuition too much, because very often you're going to be wrong.
1: You said something there that I'm really fascinated in. What motivates people? And I think oftentimes we believe and we've discussed this a lot on the show that our motivations are they're true they're rational you could figure out exactly why you do things but clearly as your work has shown and a lot of other people in this field have shown we really don't make rational decisions so if you could sum up you know, decades of research in a quick soundbite. <laughs> Not that that's difficult. What have you found or what are the major players in our motivation that we should know that we should keep in mind in our decision-making process? So
2: first of all, I disagree with the, with what you said about being rational. I know ah. that many of my friends do, you know, push this. And it's it's mostly the psychologists that push this because they, they start by looking at where where our decision process breaks. In order to understand where, how it works, very often you know, it's, it's very useful to start with where it breaks. That's how you study memory, for example. You look at people who can't remember, and you from that you try to figure out how the memory actually works. But as an economist, I'm much less interested in where it breaks. I'm more interested in where the assumption of economists break. So economics started, especially after World War II, to become a branch of applied math. So we just make assumptions and write a clear, clean, uh, mathematical model that explains this or describes this. And that was extremely useful in taking economics from being you know, a very you know, intuitive or whatever uh, science into becoming a, a much more useful tool uh, in, the, in understanding the world. However, these simplifying assumptions, they are, uh, like simplifying assumptions are, they're very often wrong. So if you study, I don't know, financial markets, assuming that people are selfish and just want to maximize their profits, it's probably not a bad assumption. But if you think about the workplace, for example, where you, know, you work, that's, that's a horrible assumption because we care about stuff that is not relevant. I don't want to make less than you do if we work in the same place. I care much more about that than about how much I make. Mm. And that, I don't think, is irrational. So stuff. let's put it this way. I'll, my definition of rationality. If I fall into this trap, I don't think it's irration, irrational. So if I make this mistake, I don't think that it's irrational to make it. That's my definition, my narrow definition of rationality. I think that the challenge that we have is really in understanding where does the simplifying assumption that we're selfish, we care only about ourselves and all this good stuff, where it breaks and what actually motivates us. That's that's the challenge.
1: And I I know this, again, it's research that you've done for a long time. You've written a lot on it, so it's tough to cover. But trying to pull out some of those really useful things that people could use, what have you discovered are some key components of our motivation?
2: So, for example, the the first I started by looking at when, when paying people actually backfires. So the, the idea was that sometimes, you know, when I pay some, someone money, I actually give him some information about the interaction that wasn't there before. And this information could be useful in actually shaping my understanding of the situation. So I started with, uh, with the study, for example, in daycares. You might heard about it. It was covered in other places showing that, imposing fines on parents who came late to pick up their kids actually made them come more of them come late or to come late more often and the idea over there was that before the the fine was introduced people came on time because that was the right thing to do and after that well if there is a fine and the fine wasn't large then i might as well not come on time and there is a whole host of of cases like this. So think about, John would ask you to to help him move his sofa, you know, whatever. He's moving and he needs some help. He won't offer you money for that. That would be really weird. You learn something about what he thinks about you. If he'll offer you 10 bucks or 20 bucks or 50 bucks even to help you move his sofa, right? It's fine if he'll offer you, you know, he'll tell you, he'll take you for a beer after that. That's fine. But paying you would be very, very strange. So that that's where I started. I started with looking at cases in which actually paying people is a bad idea because it changes the meaning of what they do. It changes the the meaning of the interaction and by doing that it actually backfires and make people do it less often.
1: Yeah, that actually it makes a lot of sense. I was thinking of it in terms of work. So if at a previous employer, if they said, "Okay, you have to be here at nine, but you can come here at nine thirty or ten and pay, you know, a fifteen, twenty, thirty dollar fine, whatever it might be, fifty dollar fine," shit, some days probably a hundred bucks, I I'd be more apt to show up late and just uh, lose a couple bucks. I think
2: there is a great joke about this. So uh, it's now college time. We're taking our daughter to college uh, on Wednesday. So the, the story goes, um, the dean meets the freshmen and tells them, you know, we are not that kind of, of a place over here. Boys are going to be in their dorms and girls are going to be in their, their dorms and we're not going to mix. First time we'll catch you in the other genders dorm, you'll get a $50 fine. Next time you'll get a $125 fine. And if you, we'll catch you for the third time, you'll get $200 fine. Anyone has a question? So one of the students raises his hand and asks, can I buy a monthly pass?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would have bought that pass. I would have, right. bought, it. I would have right. bought it with my parents' money, but still. <laughs>
2: yes. So, you know, it's, the idea is clear, right? So if you tell them, look, you just don't go there or you just have to be here at whatever, 9 a.m., in your example, that's a very clear message and you know what you're supposed to do. Absolutely imposing fines, well, if the fine will be large enough, so, you know, if you'll be uh, if if the punishment for coming late or for uh, going to the other uh, dorm would be large enough, you won't do it. But if it's slow, then you would do it. it. Basically what it does, it is putting a price on the action. And if the price is not high enough, then you'll get the, the opposite of what you intended to get.
1: You know what that reminds me of is I've gotten probably 10 10- to 15 speeding tickets via uh, cameras in DC because they have these really annoying, I swear, they're basically speed traps. The, sp- the speed limit drops from 45 to 20 while under a bridge going downhill, and I always got speeding tickets, but they're only $25 and there's no points on your license. So the I, my obvious um, conclusion is that they do that because it's pretty much... Kind of ridiculous that they can give you a speeding ticket via camera, but if they price it low enough, nobody's going to complain. They'll just pay it off. They make a couple of bucks and everything's good.
2: Right? Everyone is happy. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I know payment and pricing is something you focus on a lot. I know I actually watched the talk you gave on the whole uh, pay what you want pricing structure and that model. And I was hoping you could talk about that because you've done a lot of work. It's really fascinating stuff.
2: I agree. So just to Tell the listeners what it is. Basically, the idea is that instead of the company charging you a, a set price, they just tell you, you know what? You can choose how much to pay. Now, clearly, that won't work if you're going to buy a car, right? Or if you're doing something that, you know, or if you're buying it, you know, a product from a company you don't like. If Microsoft will sell its stuff this way, no one would pay. But it turns out that, you know, if you're an artist, for example, and it was used by uh, by quite a few already. If you're an artist and you're selling your music, the people that will buy it probably like you. Otherwise, why would they download your music? And if you ask them to pay what they want, turns out that people are happy to pay something. Right? So they're happy to pay $10 for, for, your, um, for your music, for example. And we saw it in Disney for pictures. We saw it. Now we're doing it with the theater in Spain in which we have a way to measure how much you love. So it's a comic show. And there is a way with an ipad to see how often you laugh and then we tell you you know you laughed 17 times with the face recognition software now choose how much to pay turns out that people are happy to pay in this case so when you 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 gain by this many things again first of all there is no point in cheating you know there's no point in uh, downloading your music illegally when i can buy it for free right so there is no you're not actually losing that much because people are going to pay for your stuff. Second, people would not feel that you're trying to trick them because you know, they could have paid zero. If they're not happy with your product, they cannot complain because they choose how much to pay. And so on, right? There are many advantages of doing this. Mm. And the, the basic idea is the same in all of them. By trusting your customers. So we talk a lot about how we can make uh, the customers trust the company. But now we're talking about the company trusting the, the clients. Turns out that it pays off in many situations. I, you know, I feel good about myself if I go to a restaurant, there are a few restaurants that work this way, I get great food, and then they ask me to pay, I'm happy to pay $5, $10 for that, you know, whatever, the, whatever seems reasonable in this case. And actually I feel much better about myself after doing this than if I would simply choose not to pay.
0: So I've used the pay what you want model a bunch of times, especially with music, with artists that, you know, sometimes I might not know them so well. So I pay zero just to check out the music. Or if I'm a big fan, I pay $5, $10, whatever it may be. And I love that model. I think that's the way we should go. But the one argument that I always hear is that model only works for people who are established. So this might work for Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails or whoever else puts out an album for pay-as-you-go, but these smaller artists and smaller groups that are out there, if nobody knows about them and people are asking them to pay what you want, do you see that model working for, like across the board, or is it just specifically for these larger, well-known, established acts or artists? Uh,
2: I think you're going to hate me by the, by the end of the interview, because, again, I completely disagree with you. But, I think that it's just the opposite. If you are Radiohead, people are going to buy your music anyway but if you are some small artist that no one heard of who would pay for that right so it's you actually gain some some benefit by the fact that no one actually heard about you no one would have paid otherwise but mm. if it's free people will download it and if they like it they might pay actually and then they are more likely to come to your show they're more likely to buy a shirt that you have so actually it's a, it's a very good pr way for less established artists, less established companies to actually get you to try their product because there is no risk in doing this. So I agree with you that, you know, radio ad is safe because people are going to do it, you know, are going to pay, but they're going to pay anyway for radio ad. Right. For a new artist, it's, it's more difficult. And by the way, it's when I give talks about my book, I also sell the book with pay what you want after that. You know, so I, first I give the talk. Then people decide if they want to buy the book. If they want to get the book, they can get it for free, and usually people pay a bit more on average, a bit more than the book uh, would have cost otherwise. So it seems as if people do like that, and I think that it's good, in particular when you are uh, when you are not sure if you'll want the the product. So first you get the lecture, first you get to listen to some track, and so on, and then you decide. I think that that's that's working i think men much of the much of the marketplace especially online is going to move into this uh, this kind of market uh, pricing
0: well you've already swayed me so <laughs> i, I like that uh that argument for the uh small artists or, or bands and how it's how it's essentially pr in getting their name out there
2: right so the big the big problem for the small artist is to get people to actually try them
0: right Yeah, they're not
2: good. It's not going to work. They can do whatever uh, behavioral economics trick they want. It's not going to work. But if they are good, then how, how would people know about them? Well, pay what you want is one way to get people to know about you.
1: Well, so then let's let's pose a hypothetical here. Say you run a podcast and you've done approximately 150 episodes for free. And right. you're trying to get people to pay what they want. What is the best way we could convince listeners? <laughs> so first
2: of all I can get I can tell you what's the worst way. The worst way would be to start charging. Yeah. People really hate including me, so I don't think again it's about the rationality. People hate paying for something that they got for free before that. Sure. However, you know, if you'll tell the people, look, we're doing this podcast, we don't want to become rich out of it, but we want to support the costs that we have. We want to actually maintain this and be able to do this. If you like us, you know, pay us a bit. Now, in your case, one of the problems could be that the main obstacle for many of your listeners is actually to reach to their their pocket, take out the credit card, put it on your site. They don't trust it. It's, you know, it's, for me, and for many others, that's, that's the big hurdle. So one thing that could have been great is to have some kind of clearinghouse, like, like PayPal, but for pay what you want. Mm. In which my, you know, I have all, all my details are over there. And when I listen to podcasts that I like or to music that I like, and people are asking me to pay something, I say, sure. So this podcast, actually, I enjoyed it. And I want to see more of it. Let's pay five bucks. Many of your listeners will be happy to do that. If you'll charge them five bucks, they'll just say, nah, you know, we're not interested."
1: Yeah, yeah. So no, s- we could never, we could never impose that now, and we wouldn't want to. Actually, John did find there's a interesting software thing called Patreon that uh, a lot of podcasters use, and we've been thinking about it. But um, it's definitely an interesting conversation, especially when you get into this. The, the free media or, you know, artists, like musicians these days, the ways they have to get out there and the way that whole model has changed after Napster. And so I'm sure this topic is something that is extremely timely for you and your work.
2: I agree. So it's, I think the model, so I don't know if you heard last week about Starbucks. They had a chain of, I don't remember, 450 people, I think, or something crazy like that, that each one paid for the one that comes next next to him. So The first person went on, paid for her coffee. And then she said, you know what? I'll pay also for the guy after me. The guy after her, you know, came to pay. And they told him, well, the the woman before you just paid for you. Said, you know what? I'll pay for the person next to me. And they had a crazy chain of like, I don't know, 450, I think, people that did that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that shows that the nice part about this I feel part of the community if you would have told me you have to pay for the person in front of you I wouldn't do it I don't like that it's stupid but if you tell me you know what that's what they did do you want do you want to do it do you want to continue this chain that's something that many of us will feel yeah sure why not it's it's kind of fun it's kind of nice I feel less you know isolated in my car maybe when I do that
1: and so is Oh go ahead John. I
0: was going to say I didn't know about that until I read the story yesterday about the guy that decided to end, end the chain. I <laughs> read that right. yeah. Some blogger and yeah. he was just like oh it's it's not fair if somebody else like feels like they have to do this. Right. Uh, it was just interesting that it took that the person that decided to end it on their own like made the news.
2: Right 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 right. So it's you know it's a very different situation than your podcast would be or paying online in general because you see people right so it's kind of weird because you know you go to to the to pay and then they tell you you know what 200 people before you chose to do that what do you want to do now are you going to be a nice guy or are you going to be you know an ass so that's that's kind of um a bit more stressful i agree with the blogger that that wrote this that it's kind of well maybe it's less pleasant Online you don't have this kind of pressure because no one knows you.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things. I mean, you're still paying pretty much the same amount of money. So, it's really just changing the our relationship to that transaction, right? Absolutely. Yes. Okay.
2: And I think that the the main thing that we found was something that economists psychologists call identity. So, what do we mean by identity you feel you want to feel good about yourself you want to feel that someone gave you this podcast worked hard to do it and you're a nice person you're going to pay for it you can get it for free but you know if someone worked for it it's kind of fair to pay them something for for their effort or in order to get it more in the future so you feel much better about yourself if you do it we had we did this in uh, Disney in one of the theme parks People went on a roller coaster, and then uh, Disney got their picture. Like you know, instead of selling it to them, it was you know you had to choose how much to pay. People didn't pay that much, but then we introduced something else into this. We we had a treatment in which half of what people paid went for charity for sick kids, and then we saw that people were less people actually bought bought the picture. But if they did, they paid very nicely. So they paid five times more than they did when there was no charity associated with it. So the, the, the explanation that we have is that if if mm-hmm. some, if some everything goes to Disney for example, well Disney, everyone loves Disney but they charge you a lot of money. Maybe it's less, you know, you don't want to pay them more and you'll, you won't pay if you don't have to. But if charity is on the line, then you feel bad not paying. And the, the idea is that your identity is being harmed by not being nice in this case. You feel bad about yourself. And if you choose to pay, you feel good about yourself. So you're paying the artist or Disney or whoever gives you the, the product and you feel good about yourself. That's, that's not bad for a pricing mechanism.
0: We'll be right back
1: to this interview after a quick word from our sponsors. Our sponsor this week is Igloo. And Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Work has always been social from the telephone calls we make and meetings we attend to conversations we hold around the water cooler. But when you consider the systems we use today with email and ECM, CRM, they border on antisocial. They leave us feeling chained to our desk. Igloo is a web-based platform for collaborating at work. So you can work better together, co-authoring documents, sharing status updates and managing your projects all in one place. Plus, you don't have to be a certified anything to set up or use Igloo. Everything's widget-based and drag and drop. If your company has a legacy intranet built on SharePoint or old portal technology, you should take Igloo for a spin. Igloo makes us more efficient, not by replacing the productivity tools we use, but by optimizing the flow of information between people in our organization. Head on over to igloosoftware.com slash smart people and use it for free with up to 10 of your favorite coworkers or customers. Again, check it out, support the show, head on over to igloosoftware.com slash smart people and try it for free for up to 10 coworkers. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. This happens to me all the time because they do it at grocery stores now anytime I go to the pet <laughs> store. That, you know, it's it used to be or previously, you know, uh, do you want to donate $5 to so-and-so charity? And it was always a struggle for me to hit the no button, but okay. Sometimes I did it. And I just went to the pet store and it said, do you want to save dying animals? (laughs) And, And then it had in one button, yes, donate X dollars. And in the other, no. And I was like, How are they going to do that to me? Now, granted, I think that would really go to a lot of the things you're saying. I didn't want to donate because the way they were forcing me to feel. And then I also didn't want to go back to that store.
2: Right. That's even worse. Right. So if if they were able to convince you not to come over again, that's really horrible for them. Even if you donated, that's the opposite of what they wanted.
1: Yeah. And And
2: instead of that, you know, just. Making you feel good about pain—that's that's the secret. That's what they they should try and do. Well, so and it's not irrational of you. Again, going back to where we started, that's not irrational. That's perfectly fine. You know, if someone forces you in some with some tricks to do to donate money, you feel bad about it. I don't. No, thank you. But if someone asks you nicely and you can just decide not to give without anyone noticing, given that's really nice.
1: Yeah, and I'm really interested now to talk about, you mentioned how you wrote this book a lot for businesses and corporations. And I I love that because I think that some organizations obviously maintain their personal interaction, that component of camaraderie. But some, and obviously the larger you get, tend to lose that. They maybe devalue their employees a little bit. So understanding things like motivation and things that they really, I think, that can have an exponential impact. So I was wondering, what were some of the things that you wanted businesses to understand upon reading your research or reading your book?
2: Well, two main things. First of all, that people are much more interesting than the the boring person that many of the economists and many of the real world uh, companies actually think. So people think that we are selfish and we are... um, just thinking about ourselves, and that's a mistake so try to understand the, the real motives of people that would make you much more profitable and then don't trust your intuition i think that that's that's the second leg or second principle that we try to push try to run experiments to see whether you are right or wrong you know in in our business we we run experiments on you know 10 experiments a year and we are always surprised how often we are wrong about our predictions now I think we are better than average because we, we got, you know, experience with that, but still we are wrong quite often. And I'm sure that companies are wrong. i mean, it's not that I'm sure. I know that companies are very often wrong in the assumptions that they make about people, about what motivates people. And that's, that's too bad because they can, they can make much more money if they actually try and see what works. And that's, that's the second thing that we try to convince companies. And, it's surprising how difficult it is, so tell people you know instead of assuming what will happen if you'll raise the price, if you'll change the product, if you'll uh, introduce a new so- something new what will happen, just test it don't use a focus group, don't use conjoint analysis or use them that's fine it's not that you shouldn't use them, but don't judge just this after you you're set after you have what you want, go out and test whether it works or not in the in the best test that you have which is trying it with your real customers that don't even know that they take part in an experiment and just behave as usual and see whether they're going to to buy it or not in your case you know in the pet shop see what happens to the customers do they actually run away do they get upset do it you know try to roll it before you go with with the big deal in the book we talk about netflix so netflix if you remember a couple of years ago had this great uh, idea of splitting the company to two to have uh, one part which will deal with the DVD, with the male DVDs, and the other one with streaming. So overnight, they raised the price. from Before that, it was, I think, $10 for streaming and DVD. And then overnight, they made the price $7 for DVD, $7 for the streaming. And after a couple of months, they lost 60% of the company or 80% of their company and $11 billion. That was huge. Instead of doing this, they could have done something much simpler. They could have gone to, say, San Diego, come to San Diego, run it with the clients in San Diego, see how they react to this. They would would have found out that people really hate this idea. And then they wouldn't have to pay that much. What's interesting about it is that now Netflix, the CEO came out a couple of months ago and said, that everything they do they test before that so they Hmm. if they want to raise the price by a dollar they go to ireland and see what happens if they do it and and so on so they they any change that they want to make they first test on a small group which is great they learned the lesson question is why do you have to pay 11 billion (laughs) dollars as tuition fee why can't you learn from other people's experience
1: that's an expensive lesson (laughs) it is
2: very expensive and that's what we try to convince people you know instead of just trying instead of Trust in your intuition. Trust your intuition in order to come up with what might work, but then go and test it. Don't don't stop at the intu- intuition
1: level. Yeah, and I think I'd be interested to hear if you came up with any findings on why people tend to trust their intuition or refuse to test given the grave consequences if you don't and you get it wrong. Because I would imagine that, I mean, I work for a small organization and sometimes we test, but sometimes we don't. And sometimes I'm the one that has to make that decision. And I think oftentimes it's either I'm too busy. Sometimes I'm too lazy. And sometimes I'm scared to really come up with an idea, try it, and it be terrible because then I wonder how does that speak on my ideas?
2: Right. So I think that you touched on a few of the, of the reasons. One reason is that People think that it's really hard to experiment. And you sh- you know, if, you run, if you design the experiment well, it's extremely simple to run it. Extremely simple, very cheap, and very easy to run. So the, 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 the thought that, oh, it's going to be so expensive to do it, that's just wrong. The second reason is that many people think that they are paid to know. So what do you mean I need to, to mm. experiment? I'm, you know, why am I paid so much? I'm supposed to know what's the right <laughs> price, for example. And they don't see the the tool that we that we are offering. They don't see it as you know as something that adds because they feel that they are threatened by this. And then in many cases they just avoid doing this because you know either it's too expensive or they think that they know or they think that that would reflect bad on them. Like you said, because oh either I came up with a stupid idea or what do you mean experiment? I should I should know the answer. You know, so it's it's all all thought thought. You know, these kind of things that that really um, prevent people from doing it. And it's hard. Uh, you know, I give this talk. I convince people that all the other companies that didn't experiment and then experiment and earned a lot of money. You know, we have with the health insurance company that saved $50 million on incentives that they gave. And everyone says, yes, that's great. But then you tell them, OK, so are you going to run experiments in your company? Oh, no, 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 no. In our company, we don't. We, we know what's right. You know, it's uh, that will never work or, or something like that. It's it's hard to convince companies and people that using a very simple tool could really help them.
0: I really want to jump back to the Netflix thing real quick because when Reed Hastings made that decision to split the company into two with the DVD and the streaming, he believed that DVDs were going away. And he was I was right. And I yeah, I completely agree with him. So in that in that situation where he sat there, and his intuition was telling him the correct thing, and he knew he was right, but then it turns out that he might be a little bit ahead of his time for that. How do you get people to experiment and and really let go of that intuition of, I know I'm 100% correct? Um, because in that situation, like it might be five years, 10 years down the road where we look back on this and say, Reed was 100% correct.
2: So I'm not sure that it was wrong. So, you know, Reed AC wasn't wasn't wrong in his intuition that DVDs are out and streaming is in. That wasn't a mistake. And that's that's not what upset people. What people were upset about is that what they felt is unfair. Mm. They felt that the company, you know, they started as Robin Hood, right? They were against blockbuster that was so unnice to us and charged the late fee and they were just, you know, behaving not nicely. And then, you know, Netflix was the Robin Hood who came and saved us. And now when they got their market power, they are deciding, you know, they're raising the price by 40% overnight or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That I think that's what people resented. So he wasn't wrong in his intuition that you should, it's time to move on from DVDs. He was wrong in the way he did that. So he didn't understand or the, the people at the company didn't understand how much they're going to annoy people by, Actually, by you know, splitting this, making you use two passwords in order to get in, and and all the things that came around it, because now you're you're strong enough and and you can do it. Hmm. Right? That's that's what they missed. So, wh- what's nice about it is that the what they missed was not part of what they had in mind. They didn't think about that. They just thought, oh, we're going to raise the prices. Some people will say, oh, it's too expensive, and move move on we'll cancel their uh, membership but all, all all in all we're going to make money out of this what they didn't understand is that so many people are going to get so upset about this that they will just say you know what if that's the way you behave i don't want i want to cancel my member- membership i don't like you anymore and that's again going back to the beginning i don't think that that's irrational being upset with a company that doesn't behave is not irrational it's perfectly fine
1: uh, no, I completely agree. I actually remember when Netflix did that. It pissed me off. But <laughs>
2: right, exactly. And even if you didn't cancel it, it's bad for a company to piss you off. Right, right? yeah. You know, it's, it's just a bad idea.
1: Yeah. And I, I had one more question that I have to ask you. I know we're running long on time here, but you conducted a study, and the the article I read about it was titled Matarazzi Effect and the Strategic Use of Anger in Competitive Interactions. Yes. And I found that really interesting just because – really that conglomerate right there all those words like anger and then competition i really was interested on the economics behind it so i'd like to hear more but then I started reading, and you, <laughs> I laughed thinking about this. You started off with the story of uh, Zinedine Zidane. And I, I'm not a huge soccer fan, but I've seen the YouTube video <laughs> where he headbutts the shit out of someone.
2: Right, out of Matarazzi. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah, and so I was hoping you could um, kind of tell us how that story played into that study.
2: Right, so the story for other people who are not that much into soccer the, it was the World Cup 2006 in, um, in Germany. It's the biggest sport event you can think of. Zidane was arguably the, one of the best players ever, and that was his last game ever. He was the captain of the, of the French team. It was France against Italy. Again, it doesn't get bigger than that. So then they, they start the game, they get, it's 1-1, they go into overtime and the French have a bit of advantage, but not that much. And then Materazzi, who is a defender, quite anonymous, no one would have heard about him without this in, incident, goes to Zidane and pulls his shirt. That happens, you know, tens of times every game. Well, Zidane told him, well, you know, if you want my shirt, I can give it to you after the game. Nothing special so far. Then Matarazzi said something bad. It's not clear exactly what, but apparently against about uh, Zidane's sister. Again, nothing special. They they do it all the time. And like you said, Zidane reacted by headbutting him, and that was the last thing that he did in his long soccer career. The the when the game went into uh, penalty kicks, or and Zidane was the best player the best kicker in the french team was out of course eventually the french team lost so you know zidane instead of just cooling you know counting to 10 or doing whatever lost it and i think that he lost lots of uh, nights sleep because of that right it's it's something that if he would have thought about it if he would have a few minutes he wouldn't have done and that led us to thinking about more generally when is it when should you upset the other side? When should you make the other side angry in a in, in some, that kind of strategic interactions? And you know, the wisdom usually is that you should never do that. Well, you can think about uh, this game, you can think about all the all the TV shows in which you see the cross-integration of you know in the in the court where the witness breaks and tells stuff that he has the rest of his life in jail to regret saying it and so on so there are situations clearly there are situations in which it makes sense to to upset the other side because you can you can get them off balance and they can do mistake they can make mistakes and we found that if it if it requires self-control it's actually it actually makes sense to to upset you so you can think about poker for example in poker you know we talk about putting people on tilt right so you upset people and they're making a mistake they're trying to get back at you and the cross-examination and many other examples like this. So then, then it's kind of a good idea to make you upset because you're going to lose. But if the competition is something that requires force, so if, uh, if all I have to do is press something as hard as I can for as long as I can, then it's a mistake to upset you. So if it's something that requires self-control, I should be careful not to upset you. If it requires cognitive abilities, that's a good time to upset you. What was really nice about it was that our subjects, I don't know if they actually understood this, but they behaved as if they understood it. So when when we let them compete over something that required force, they didn't upset the other guy. But when it was something that required self-control or some more cognitive abilities, then they were happy to actually upset the other guy. (laughs) So the, the subjects in our experiment used it in a strategic way, and that's, I think that was the main finding of that study.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And I love those, the the anecdotes you give along with your findings. And you do that throughout the book. Again, the book is The Y-Axis, Hidden Motives and the Undiscovered Economics of Everyday Life. And we'll put a link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Uri, I wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. And I also wanted to see, I searched for a blog and I didn't find one. So is there anywhere that you write or are you just kind of head down in the books and giving speeches?
2: Um, I do write op-eds from time to time, but that's true. I don't have a blog. Maybe I should have one, but it's uh, it's very demanding. So I'm uh, I'm a bit lazy,
1: you know. I was so. gonna say, I mean, if you're doing well regardless, then don't start one. You know, I find that a lot of the people we talk to that are just successful authors or and they're they're academics and all that and they're speaking, they say the same thing. Oh no, I, I don't have a blog, man. I don't have time for that. So I don't I don't want to twist your arm to that. But is there anywhere else that uh, you would like our listeners to reach out? Do you do social media or anything like that?
2: Um not really, so i'm not speaking <laughs> into this right so it's it's actually interesting you're talking about other uh, other authors so many of the people that you interview are probably people that you know they are writers they're not researchers they are doing you know so think of from Gladwell down the food chain sure those people you know that 's what they do they write as researchers we are we have we have more of constraints. We have to be much more accurate in what we're saying. It's it's You're not expected to just say what you think about something. Mm-hmm. You need to bring evidence about it. You need to be more accurate. So it, it makes it less fun and more difficult to, to write, which um, I think that's one of the reasons that they don't want to do it at this stage is that it's really um, it's hard to, to keep the, the academic uh, part of it and uh, and write in a blog
1: so yeah i mean you know
2: people do it successfully (laughs)
1: but
2: it's not trivial
1: well and that's why it's great that you put it in the book so that the masses could read it instead of just the people who know how to find white papers so we applaud you for doing that (laughs) thank you well uri again thank you so much for your time and we appreciate it and best of luck on your future endeavors
2: thanks it was fun
1: all right have a good night you too Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye, Thank you.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Smart People Podcast. If you want to follow all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Smart People Pod. And if you want to support the show, there are a couple things that you can do that are Extremely easy. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click on the Amazon banner. Anytime you make an Amazon purchase, we will get a kickback from Amazon with no cost to you. It truly does help out the show. So thank you in advance. Also, you can head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review, rating, and comment there. Again, that helps out the show as well. It helps us get wonderful guests on the show. And we do love to hear what you guys think about the show. And if you want to drop us a line, please feel free to email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email if you just want to say hi or if you want us to mail out a laptop sticker to your house or dwelling. That's it for this episode of Smart People Podcast, but we will see you guys next week.